0: If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Hosea chapter 8 today. Before we began our, our Sunday school today, we had some lively discussions. We got maybe in two sentences into Ross's prep before we went rabbit trailing for the whole morning. It was, it was fun. We had a good time. We had discussed some really important things. One of the things we talked about was the fact that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we are thankful to be able to gather together together to look at his word together, and to feast upon the knowledge that is there. Uh, But sometimes you just need bread too. So if you need some bread, we've got some extra bread from our food pantry. And uh, up in the kitchen area there's some bread on the counter. Also um, check the refrigerator. We've got some greens in the refrigerator that did not get distributed as well. And they'll be good for a few more days but if they sit here till next Saturday they're no good to us. So uh, if you need those things or if you know somebody who does, please grab them after the service and uh, and take them home and give them to somebody who can put them to good use. In the meantime, uh, the Lord is going to nourish us and strengthen us through His Word. Each Saturday evening, uh, we try as a family for our uh, family worship time around the table to preview what God's going to teach us on Sunday morning so we can have an anticipation of what we're going to be thinking about and what we're going to observe. And my family was mildly shocked when I told them that we were going to be doing a whole chapter this morning because... Usually I go a lot slower through the word than that. Um, It was a little disappointing when I told them, well, last week I did a whole chapter and three verses from the previous chapter. That wasn't shocking, but uh, they had forgotten. So uh, try to remember what we learned today, guys. We're going to be in chapter 8 of Hosea. And when you're preaching through a historical narrative, sometimes the scripture just dictates that you do a larger chunk of scripture at one time. We're going to see a lot of repetition of theme in chapter 8, as we read through it, uh, there's, there's a, basically a repeating pattern that's going to happen throughout this chapter, and so it behooves us this morning to look at the whole thing as, as a unit, and so we're in Hosea chapter 8. If you've got your Bibles open, you can follow along as I read this chapter. It's not very long. It's only about 14 verses long today, uh, but the Lord, I'm sure, will be teaching us some good things about reaping and sowing this morning. and uh, and about the generosity of salvation that we find in in Christ's grace. Verse 1, set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flour. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel, for they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute." Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. A lot to think about and learn this morning, so let's pray and ask that God would direct our steps and enlighten our learning. Almighty God, we come to you humbly thankful that the Spirit is a gift freely given to those who trust in Jesus Christ. And without that gift, we would be wanderers. We would be lost without the knowledge that we need to live in a way that's pleasing to you, Lord God. You not only give us wisdom and insight and understanding, but you give us power to live in ways that we could never live before. And so we are grateful, Lord God, that these words can have the impact on us that they need to have. Father, give us repentant hearts about our sin, Lord. Help us to learn from the mistakes of others here. Help us to also be humble enough to know that we've made some of these mistakes ourselves. God, we praise you for your corrective word, but we praise you for the way the word became flesh and dwelt among us, living that perfect life that we failed to live and and that Christ, you gave that life on the cross and rose on the third day triumphant. You are now seated at the right hand of the Father because of your ascension and we rejoice in that victory today, Lord. So help us to recognize that sin has no power over us if we are in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You reap what you sow. This is a fairly straightforward concept that points to the realities of cause and effect. This wisdom principle opens our eyes to the fact that we live in a world that's governed by a God who is ordered, a God who is not chaotic, a world that has been designed with a great many natural laws in it that create some kind of peace and structure. Now the language of the metaphor depends upon agricultural experiences. It's leaning on that understanding, the kind that most of the original audience who read this in Hosea's day would have been familiar with. But the concept is so generally and obviously true that you don't have to be a farmer yourself to be able to understand the metaphor and agree with its principles. So we can benefit from it as well. Farming requires preparation, doesn't it? It requires planning. It requires resources. And when one sets about to make use of the natural cycle of life that is present in nature. They must budget their time and their effort over the course of an extended period. And since so much personal investment goes into farming, a person needs to have a reasonable expectation that if they put X amount of time and effort, they can be confident that they will get Y amount of return for their labor. When we think about reaping and sowing, we need to understand that there's a quantitative sense in which this principle holds true. In other words, quantity, the more effort we expect to put into something, the more we should reasonably expect to come out of that effort. Grabbing a handful of seeds, opening your back door and chucking them out onto the lawn is minimal effort, but you're probably not gonna get a whole lot of return from that kind of farming, right? If you are intent to grow food, then you might go out and put some extended effort, a higher quantity of work into building a garden, tilling a field. You might have to clear it of rocks first. You might have to break up the hard soil. You might have to set an automated watering system up because if you're like me, you're not going to remember. If you live in Oakley, you're going to have to put some amendments in because some things just don't grow in sand, right? You want to protect your Garden from potential predators, may that be bugs or animals or unwanted weeds. You want to put some effort into learning enough about what you're trying to grow so that you'll know when to harvest and when not to harvest, how much to water and how much to hold back, just what amount of light you need to make sure that crop receives. So there's quantitative truth to the reaping and sowing principle we're going to talk about this morning. But there's also qualitative. There's a qualitative sense in which this principle holds to be true for us. The kind of seed that you sow will logically determine what you get as a result of all your time and your effort. If you're planting corn in the soil, you should not expect to have strawberries when all is said and done. We are unreasonable and subject to error and great disappointment if we think that we're going to get something better or substantially different than what we put in to begin with, at least when it comes to farming. The society we live in has several mythical ideas that are not true. Maybe we can grow ourselves a money tree one day, and it'll just produce money. We don't have to work for it. I'll find a golden goose, right? And that golden goose, just a little bit of effort to take care of that goose will produce golden eggs, and I'll be rich forever. Or maybe I'll find the fountain of life, right? So i can just drink that water, and I'll stay young, and I can eat whatever I want to eat, and, and no sort of physical hardship will beset me. We wish as a society that there would be a quick fix to everything. But there are qualitative truths to this idea of reaping and sowing. There are also quantitative truths. As a wisdom principle, the idea of reaping what you sow is not a guarantee in writing that you're going to experience a one-to-one return on your investment. There are many variables at play that are beyond our control. But the basic wisdom behind reaping and sowing is a useful framework for approaching life. And as such, you're going to find it again and again in some form or another throughout the scriptures that God has given to us. As a legal principle, reaping and sowing points to fair and equitable law. If you break a law, legally there should be a proportionately appropriate consequence to breaking that law. Now our nation has its flaws, I'll be one of the first to tell you that and admit it, but to its credit, efforts have been made over the years to ensure that punishments fit crimes here. Cruel and unusual punishments are outlawed. People don't get their hands cut off for stealing a loaf of bread. Modern society owes the precepts of the Bible a thank you for that as God instructed the Israelites to honor that kind of fairness in the enforcements of its laws. Now, I'm a little bit frustrated right now because we live in a land where there's almost no penalty for laws. We need to err on the other side of caution now. But this legal principle of reaping and sowing means that you should be punished according to the crime and not beyond it. But as we apply this principle to our soul, not in a legal sense, but to our soul, it should point out a great danger to our well-being because all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. As we will see by meditating on the verses of chapter 8, we should not expect a God of truth and justice to grant great blessings to us if we're consistently sowing rebellion and law-breaking behavior towards God. In, In Israel's case, this is especially true as they existed as a people who had entered into a formal covenant with God, a covenant of works, a covenant that came with promises of blessings and curses based on whether or not the participants in the covenant walked according to the vows it contained. going to give you a spoiler alert here, a little preview of what's to come. Those who are in Christ are not bound in the same kind of covenant. So as we think about Israel's situation, we've got to be very cautious not to apply what they're going through to our particular station in history. We've been granted a newer covenant, a better covenant, and we're going to speak about the differences as we progress through chapter 8. Now, all of chapter 8 is essentially a succession of evidence. Remember, back in chapter 4, God began to put forth a legal case against Israel, the northern kingdom in particular. And so here in chapter 8, we're almost going through the catalog of evidence, whereby God shows that his people have been unfaithful to him. And we also look at the exponential consequences that are linked to each of those instances of law-breaking. They have already begun to produce consequence in the lives of those who live in the north. But through the prophet Hosea, they are being warned now that there's an even greater consequence that is coming down the pike. Let's consider the kinds of things that the northern kingdom of Israel must soon reap based on the fact that they had been sowing consistent unfaithfulness to God. So we're going to go through this kind of rapid fire here. In verse 1, the ringing of a trumpet was as a system of alarm in the days of Hosea and the, uh, the nation of Hebrews. And so when you heard a trumpet, it often signaled that there was a hostile force approaching the city, that you needed to ready yourself, shut the gates if you had them, prepare for battle. Yahweh instructs His prophet to put the the trumpet to his lips. In a sense, he's saying, warn these northern tribes because a danger is coming and it's not just Assyria. The danger is the judgment of Yahweh. Hosea is to warn them that the judgment is advancing. A terrible foreign nation is part of that judgment. Assyria who does not honor God or care for his laws is poised like a vulture to feast upon Israel when they fall in judgment to these sins that they've committed against God. Now, I think the vulture is is a perfect illustration here of what Assyria is going to do in this whole process. A vulture is a good capitalist, you might say. The kind of bird that a vulture is, they are poised to take advantage of an opportunity. A vulture is not itself a particularly skilled hunting bird. It is a scavenging bird. This indicates that Assyria, the vulture, is not really the power that's going to subdue Israel and punish them. Assyria is simply the, in the right place at the right time to be used as an instrument by God to make the physical dismantling of the northern kingdom come to pass and to capitalize on their violation of the covenant. So like a vulture who capitalizes on the, the good hunting of the lion and takes part of the carcass away to eat, so will Assyria rush in and take advantage of the loss of blessing that northern kingdom of Israel is about to experience. In verse 3, they've, they've spurned what is good neglecting the positive commands that God has given to them for their good. They will be pursued by their enemies as a result of this, but the God who had faithfully protected them in the past, the one who they would normally call out to, is the one they've been offending with their faithlessness. Yahweh, their protector, is the one who's bringing the charges against them. So who will protect them? Who will help them to avoid destruction if they have spurned their God? Verse 4 shows their misguided sense of self-preservation. They have appointed rulers and princes over themselves, excluding God from the process and the decisions. When it says here, but I knew it not, it doesn't mean that God was ignorant to what they were doing. It means that the nation of Israel did not involve him in the process of raising up godly leaders for themselves. They did it apart from him. They did not consult him. They did not choose men that were faithful and would lead them in faithfulness. And so we've seen already how the priests have been a horrible example of leadership, and the people are just following after the terrible sins of the priests. We've seen how the kings have failed Israel, how they have led in a way that is selfish and is ignorant of God's ways, and so the people have followed in suit. They've used the silver and the gold and the physical wealth that Yahweh provided to them to create for themselves illegal idols for their worship. Despite much patience on the part of God, the time has come to root out this sin and bring the consequences of unfaithfulness to light. In verses 5 and 6, we see that Israel is described as having spurned the good, meaning they've neglected to keep God's good instruction to love Him and to love their neighbor as themselves. This has manifested in many different ways. We've studied some of that in the previous three chapters. As a consequence, God is spurning their false worship. They've spurned the good, and He's spurning their worshipful efforts because underneath all of that Religious exterior is an interior that does not truly love the Lord, fear Him, or honor Him. And so He has rejected this golden calf that they made, and He's rejected it in anger. Likely the one that was placed in Bethel is in mind here. You remember from previous weeks, we talked about how the northern kingdom, afraid that their people would travel down into Jerusalem to make their offers and their sacrifices to the Lord. They issued two different places of worship, Bethel and um, I'm forgetting the other one right now, uh, but in these two places of worship, they built golden calves, and those golden calves were to be in, in some haunting ways, like the golden calf that was made in the book of Exodus that caused such grief to the people, a way that God might, might be worshipped, but through a physical idol that was opposed to Jerusalem, the place of true worship, and so he's rejecting this calf. This profane image is man-made. It is not God-ordained, and he's determined to shatter it. Verses 8 through 10. Though God communicated through his covenant that he would be Israel's strong protector, they unfaithfully reach out to foreign nations to provide them with strength and security. Even to Assyria, the very nation that will eventually press Israel beneath its boot. They hire out their love and their devotion to whatever make-believe God's they might think, have the potential to improve their situation or help them to prosper. Gods like Baal and the Asherah. And for this religious infidelity, their word has come to mean nothing among the nations. The nations can see that this covenant people are not keeping a covenant. So they're not being taken seriously by other nations. They are doomed to be swallowed up by their neighbors who are mightier and craftier than they. they though they sought freedom through their own methods, what they will end up getting is oppression and exploitation. The foreign nations they are counting or they are courting, the foreign nations they're flirting with, are going to charge them hefty tribute and taxes, and they're going to feel like slaves again. Israel will pay a steep price for her rebellion against the Lord. And then in verses 11, 13, and 14 of this chapter, we see that Israel has offered sacrifices to Yahweh but they do so without any true regard for his great character. So he considers their gifts to be empty and worthless. In verse 11, we see a tricky play on words here. Ironically, altars are supposed to be a place where atonement for sin is made, right? That's what Leviticus has taught these Israelites, that if they sin against their God, then he's made provisions to counteract that sin, bring an offering to me, do it according to my law, and for the time being, we'll be all right will be able to stay in fellowship with one another. These altars were to be a place where blood could be shed as a temporary marker until the true sacrifice, the true spotless lamb, could come. But because of Israel's flippant and unscriptural worship practices, these altars, and they have built many of them, serve only to add to their offenses against Yahweh. They build these altars, but instead of forgiveness increasing because of sacrifices they bring, they bring faulty sacrifices, they bring profane offerings, and so their sin debt only increases even through their acts of wrong worship. Though Yahweh had secured freedom in a holy land for this covenant people, they are subjecting themselves to a sinful way of life that will enslave them more than Egypt did years before. Their disregard for God is resulting in a return to that kind of bondage. That's why he says, I will send you back to Egypt. Because they are essentially regressing to the state where sin is their master again. Israel is playing as if they are in covenant with Yahweh, but his words don't actually direct their true worship. Their real love and devotion is their own prosperity. And so verse 14 talks about how they multiply their palaces in their fortified cities. Much effort is being made to make the nation of Israel look strong, but very little effort is put into making sure their worship is correct and pleasing to the Lord. They're building for themselves strongholds. Even Judah in the south has begun to do the same. God is not going to ignore this transgression of priority. He will destroy these profane places so that Israel will know that He alone is God, and He alone is worthy of their trust and dependence. Verse 12 sums up God's frustration towards the, disobedience, uh, t- towards the disobedience of his covenant people. He says, were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be re- regarded as a strange thing. In other words, God has made great effort to bring his people near to him through these laws, these structures by which they're going to operate in fellowship and kindness to one another. And yet they act as if he's never spoken anything to them. They behave as if he's not revealed to them this important and good law. They've ignored so much of what he has revealed that the solution is not more laws. God must bring about a harvest of punishment so that they can see how foolish they've been to sow this great iniquity. So you should be able to see by now the rhythm and the cadence of Hosea's message in chapter 8, right? Here is your sin. Here is the consequence that will come from your sin. Here is how you have sowed. Here is what you can expect to reap from this difficult sowing. Now the organizational principle of the chapter is found in verse 7. For they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. But this expression of wisdom principle teaches us something about the dangers of sin itself. You reap what you sow. We talked about how that often speaks to equity and and equality and fairness. You reap what you sow except when it comes to sin. When you sow, listen here, you reap worse than what you sowed. One sin does not produce only one simple consequence. Breaking the law of God leads to a multitude of problems. We see here that in chapter 8, Hosea expands upon that principle that's laid out in chapter 7. Sin cares nothing for justice. Sin does not allow for clean accounting. It is not the same thing as going into the store, seeing an item that you would like to purchase, and then making a simple assessment of whether that thing is worth the amount of money they're asking for it. When you go after sin, you think it's going to cost you this much, and it ends up costing you so much more. This hasn't happened to me yet, but I really pray that we don't get to the day where grandma and grandpa think they're going to do the kids a great benefit, and they bring home a pet for my children. Has anybody ever done that, given you a pet? Thank you, right? It seems like a wonderful gift, a fuzzy little creature, a caring thing, but really what you're giving someone is a responsibility. There's so much more cost involved with a pet, you should never give one as a gift to someone else. Let people choose their own pets. It's not to say that pets aren't worth it. We love our pets, but they are hard work. There's so much more. Than just the little price tag on the cage. We just bought a bunch of chicks, $350 each, I think we paid for them. Oh, they will cost more than that. When you sow sin, you think you're gonna get a little pleasure. You think you're gonna get a little comfort. You think you're gonna to get to feel strong, like you are in charge of your life, like you get to direct your own path. But really, what you end up getting is something so much darker so much more weighty, something that continues to cost you again and again down the line unless you have the grace of God. You're never getting what you think you're getting when it comes to your sin. Richard Caldwell, who's a commentator on the book of Hosea, I've really appreciated his work, says, Sin will take you farther than you want it to go. It will keep you longer than you want it to stay and cost you more than you want it to pay. And we cannot neglect to take into account the most crucial cost of sin. Sin is the offense that separated mankind from God so long ago. First in Adam, the original man who gave to us the inheritance of original sin. And without fail in each of us, as we follow Adam's pattern of disregard for the things of God, when we sin against God and we offend Him, we deserve a punishment from that. Not only are we expressing our autonomy but we are insulting the God to whom we owe all things. Now because of his love for us, God adamantly directs us away from sin. He instructs us again and again for the sake of his own glory, for we bear his image, and also for the sake of the good of his children. For our own good, he teaches us not to fall into these categories of error. Israel has reaped the wind here. Now this is an irony. And I don't think we catch this in the English translation. If you were to study Hebrew, and I don't know a great deal of Hebrew, friends, but a little bit stuck with me enough that when I was reading this in its original languages and trying to make sure I wasn't missing anything, something stood out to me. The word for wind here is the word in the Hebrew ruach. And ruach is a term that is used for wind and also for spirit. I find a great irony in that. Because if the people of Israel were to recognize that God, in his grace, had blessed them spiritually, if they had sowed spiritual things, then there would be a much greater harvest for them to receive from God. But because they sowed ruach, wind, an emptiness, something that seems to have a form but cannot be grasped, something that is constantly slipping through your fingers like the vanity we spoke about in Ecclesiastes. Because they've been sowing nothing of substance, they will reap nothing of real desirable substance. But instead, they're going to reap something dire. According to the prophet, the northern kingdom will reap an amplification of the nothing that it has sown. If you were to live in the area that Hosea preached from, if you were to live in Palestine and that that section of holy land that was so precious to the Israelites, then this idea of a whirlwind would immediately make sense to you. Off the coast of the waters, strong winds would often develop and the the network of hillsides and valleys there on the coastal lands of Israel would often create great swirling winds that could do great damage. Whirlwinds such as small sea-bound tornadoes could wreck a ship, they could topple uh, a, a vessel, uh, they could do great damage on the, on the shoreline. And so this kind of destructive wind has come from the simple wind that was sown by these Israelites in the northern kingdom. Language is used in verse 7 to communicate the certainty of this calamity. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flour, says Hosea. If it were to yield, strangers were, would devour it. This has hung up some commentators, and I just wanted to notice it real, real briefly. This is a literary device that Hosea is using called a or pseudosorites. And this literary device uh, happens when someone says A is not going to happen, but if it does happen, then B will come in and do what A was supposed to do. And if B does not happen, then C will come in and do what B was supposed to do. And some people say, well, look, this shows that God actually isn't ultimately sovereign over all things because Hosea is not really sure how it's going to turn out. Maybe they will have heads of grain on their stocks and maybe they won't. Maybe they will have someone come in later and, and devour the fields or maybe they won't. But this is the wrong way to look at this kind of literary device. To the contrary, this is actually Hosea's way of acknowledging the sovereignty of God while at the same time confessing that he personally doesn't know the exact ways that God's sovereignties will come about. He's not aware of the details of the means by which God's will is going to come to pass. And it might come to pass differently in different parts of Israel. Hosea knows that God will withhold the things from his people that he was formerly happy to provide for them. In the same way that Hosea withheld his blessings from Gomer, his unfaithful wife, God is about to take away the provisions that the northern kingdom needs. And some of those northerners are going to notice that their crops aren't growing like they're supposed to. Others might get their crops, but then raiders will come in and take those crops out. Others might even get their crops, and then locusts might come. God will accomplish his will, even if he does it by various means. And the clutch point is this. They will lose the provisions that are essential to them, for they have practically forsaken their God, and God... Is above all things essential to them. There is great momentum behind Hosea's proclamation to the brothers and the sisters in the north. And from our historical vantage point, we know that this dark harvest of just consequence did befall the people. In 729, after a great siege of Samaria, which was the capital city of the northern kingdom, the Israelites in the north finally had to surrender. Their national identity unraveled by the sword. Of, some, of, of the Assyrians. And this chapter and much of, uh, of uh, what remains in Hosea's prophecy is a sober reminder of the devastating effects that sin can have. But we sit here today as new covenant believers. We are not under the same covenant of works that the Old Testament uh, people of Israel were that we're reading about right now. So does the concept of reaping and sowing apply directly to us? Do we look at this this scenario of grief and destruction and crisis? Do we have to see ourselves as being in the same potential danger? For those who have been granted new life according to the graceful gift of redemption in Jesus, we've experienced the inverse blessing of this principle. Now, we've already seen the irony that you reap what you sow implies equity and fairness. It implies that you're going to get what you expect to get. But then we've seen that when it comes to sin, you get something far worse than you expect you're going to get. There isn't great equity in sin. But for those who have been granted new life according to Christ, there is an inverse effect through the gracious generosity of Jesus. Jesus reaped what we had sown. Think about this, friends. Jesus took upon himself the calamity that we should experience because of our sin. You could have written a chapter just like chapter 8 in Hosea about yourself if you were to honestly go back and look at the things that you've done to break God's law. But instead, if you are a Christian today, then Jesus has reaped that calamity upon himself. Look at 2 Corinthians 5. The Apostle Paul writes, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When you look at those words carefully, what it means here is that Jesus, who knew no sin, meaning that he had experienced personally no breaking of God's law, he saw it all around him. He lived in a world where sin abounds, but Jesus never participated in that sin. He never failed to do the good things that God had called him to do, and he never committed the errors that his countrymen were committing all about him. So he did not know intimately and personally sinfulness because he was pure and righteous and holy, he never broke the law, but he willingly became sin for us. He took its curse upon himself so that we might get the righteousness of salvation. We see this expanded upon in 1 Peter. So if you've got your Bible and you want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, I love the unity that we see between the gospel writers such as Paul and Peter and John and how they are so unified in regard to this concept of Christ taking our iniquity upon his shoulders. It says in verse 19 of 1 Peter 2 there near the end of your Bible, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So this is, this is in part Peter gearing the church up, the church in Asia Minor, to whom this letter was written, to be ready to suffer for good things, to suffer for their identification with Jesus. But the reason we're able to do that is because of what is communicated in verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, this is not a statement that applies to the whole world, because there's still a lot of sheep out there that have not returned to their shepherd. But if your faith and hope is not in your own righteousness or anything that you can do to wash clean your sins, if your faith and hope is in the Son of God, then he has reaped the wrath of God in your place. He has taken the full measure of God's anger towards sin that you had committed, and he suffered instead of you. And honestly, the cross would have to be seen as a great injustice to Jesus if he had not subjected himself to it voluntarily. We would consider it a a fracture of justice if somebody was punished for a crime that they did not commit, except for the fact that he did this not because of a failure of the justice system, he did it because he loves us. He laid down his life and he will take it up again. No one took his life away from it. And so Jesus put aside the legal right that he had under this reaping and sowing principle. He put aside the legal right to reap peace and safety that his righteousness had earned for him. He put it aside because it pleased him to suffer in our place so that we might not be subject to the wrath of God. So those who trust in Jesus, He has reaped what we sowed. But those who trust in Jesus also reap the righteousness that He sowed. Think about this, friends. Salvation does so much more than simply exempt us from hell, it doesn't just keep us out of the fire. Salvation grants us the righteousness of our perfect Savior, it guarantees fellowship with the God that we have offended, it enables us to worship as we, have, we should have worshipped since the beginning. It gives us new affections and desires for that which is good. It helps us to hate our sin properly as we ought to. It gives us a different way of looking at the people around us. They're no longer our competitors or our judge. They are simply men and women built in the image of God like we are. And, and through the grace of God that has been given to us, we should show them grace of like kind. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. This isn't going to be on the screen, but if you listen, I'll read it to you out loud here. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, says the Apostle Paul. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law meaning his righteousness is in no way due to his obedience to the things that God had commanded him to do. He says, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see what Paul is marveling at here. This man of faith is saying, I have a righteousness now, but it's not based on anything that I have accomplished as a man. And Paul was an accomplished man. Paul was a gifted individual. But he's saying, I don't boast in myself here at all. I have a gift and it is an invaluable gift. You can't put a price tag on it. And that gift is mine simply because God is so good that he chose to give it to somebody like me who does not deserve it thanks to God's grace, the idea of reaping and sowing must be applied uniquely to our understanding of salvation. The elect have been granted a greater harvest than they could ever have earned from their own efforts. But that does not mean that the principle should be thrown away entirely. Reaping and sowing still exists in some ways for the Christian. The New Testament writers still want us to understand that actions have consequences and that we need to take account of how our behavior is going to affect us in this life. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10 is one of many examples of this. The Apostle Paul, again, he writes, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that also shall he reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, interesting use of the word there, right? Spirit, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith, meaning those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we see here the practical principle that actions do have consequences. Even those who have been forgiven of their sins must expect sinful rebellion to impact them in some negative ways, not to the extent that northern kingdom of Israel is experiencing in chapter 8. But a Christian who ignores God's word has been granted forgiveness from God and yet still lives in a world where there are penalties for rebellious behavior. Um, Author Terry Johnson, who writes for Ligonier, uh, put it really well, so I'm just going to read this to you from him. He says, If one might identify the quote-unquote big lie of all the lies of our pop culture, it is that one can sin with impunity. Rarely are there any consequences for sin, meaning in our society when we look around us. He says, the drunks are all funny drunks. They are the life of the party, beloved by all. They don't seem to get in wrecks or kill people like they do in real life. They don't fail on their jobs and get fired. They don't turn their homes into hellholes. Sexual immorality is always romantic and glorious, exciting and airbrushed fun. Teenagers don't get pregnant, like in the real world. No one gets venereal disease. Single mothers don't live live in abject poverty. Adultery doesn't lead to divorce and heartbroken children. If there is a divorce, it's happy for all. If there is an abortion, there are no regrets. Life is painless. Sin has no downside. What is he talking about here? He's talking largely about Hollywood. He's talking about the way that life is portrayed to us through silver screen and through media. He goes on to say, the whole culture screams at our youth, do what you feel like doing. If you have an itch, scratch it. If you have a desire, fulfill it. But listen to what God says. He says, don't be deceived. He is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. Salvation is a free gift of grace, but it's a gift that does something to us, not just for us. If you have truly believed in Jesus, then the transformation that grace has brought about in you will cause you to have an actual desire to live in a way that is honoring to your Savior. We must not grow weary of doing good, for those who have trusted in Christ have been given a new heart, one that rejoices in sowing to the Spirit. In this Galatian passage, Paul's concerned that those in Galatia are sowing so much to the flesh that they might not even be believers. They're starting to adapt strange doctrines that have nothing to do with the gospel that they were preached originally. And they're beginning to think that their salvation is contingent upon their own obedience again. When friends, remember our greatest joy in life or death is that Christ lives and has given us life through his victory over our sin and death. Turn your attention back for one moment to Hosea 8.2. Hosea 8.2, the nation of Israel Cries out to the Lord in almost a haunting way. In verse 2 he says, To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. What does verse 3 say about verse 2? Is verse 2 authentic? Is it honest? It is not. They say that they know him. We're Israel. We're your people. But God says, You're not acting in any way as though you are in covenant with me. And I I don't think we can help as New Testament believers, but compare this to Matthew chapter 7. And many of you are familiar with this. This is near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. In, In chapter 7, verse 17, Jesus is preaching to the people, and he says, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire and thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, he's not saying here that believers are absolutely perfect. He's talking about the consistent trajectory of our life. Are we bearing good fruit to the Lord in some way? Is he doing a work in us? Or when we look at our lives, do we hear Jesus, 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 and see nothing that looks like Jesus at all? Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so there's an echo here of chapter eight, verse two. To me, they cry, God, we, Israel, know you. And God responds, Israel has spurned the good the enemy shall pursue him. Israel was behaving in some outwardly spiritual ways, but their religious behavior did not correlate with the laws that God had given to them, and their hearts were not concerned with the glory of God. And so their actions are insincere here. The one who has been shown grace through Jesus Christ cannot remain where they are. There will be change. In some respects, it will be an instant change. When you are brought into faith. Your heart comes alive. You were once spiritually dead and now you are spiritually vital and alive. You are justified. In other words, God sees you from that moment on as completely innocent before him. So there is some once and for all change that happens at the moment of your salvation. But there's also a sense in which God is progressively making us more and more like Christ as we walk through life. God is sanctifying us and refining us and he's beginning to bear the fruit that this transformational justification has sown in our hearts. So what should a new covenant Christian do when they read the reaping and the sowing principles of the old covenant? Let me just give you a few suggestions. I think that the, the reading of the old covenant and these, these dangerous warnings that Israel and Judah receive, you see them a lot in these minor prophets, Hosea being the first of them should cause us to marvel at the futility of man trying to reap salvation and security by his own efforts. We should learn very, very clearly that there is no ladder that we climb to get to the Lord. No amount of our efforts, no amount of our I'm sorry's can truly wash us clean from our sin. Unless the Lord wakes up the heart and makes a man new, he will continue in his sin. Usually only just gets better at hiding it if he doesn't have the spirit. But if God is going to redeem you, he's got to be the one who makes that process happen. So marvel at this futility, but don't marvel at it in a judgmental sort of way where you point the finger and look at Israel and say, what fools, Raka!" Look at their failure and remind yourself that if it were not for the grace of Christ, that would be the exact kind of failure that I would be living in right now. My efforts to become holy again would be constantly hollow. They'd be motivated by the wrong things. Marvel at that futility of man and recognize that we are not the kind of person that anyone should put trust in. Secondly, understand that the finished work of Jesus Christ has gained for us something that we could never sow for ourselves. Christ's perfect obedience to the law of God stands in glorious contrast to our daily struggles with obedience and love. When you look upon the life of this Son of God, and you see that the in incredible sincerity he had towards the Father. When you see his, his steadfast resolve to not be distracted by things that don't matter. When you see his willingness to constantly put his things to the side to bless someone else and to care for the needs of the hurt and the broken. Understand that Christ's perfect obedience was earning for you something that you couldn't earn for yourself. Jesus accomplished all of the law upon which Israel had covenanted with God. He carried a perfect righteousness to the cross that qualified him to take the sins of others upon himself. Had he broken the law that he was born under, he would have owed a debt to God himself. But the fact that he fulfilled the fullness of the law shows that he is able to not only come before God without guilt himself, but then to give himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for us, as a pure and spotless lamb that could take our sins upon himself. And that is exactly what he did. Friends, do you understand the magnitude of this, of Christ's righteousness, of his active obedience by which he was able to save us? Are you thankful for this? Do you wake up in the morning and rejoice that you're not condemned, that you're not on a trajectory to damnation? Because if you're in Christ, that path, that was a sure path with no variance is now eliminated. It's not for you. It's not where you're headed. And that all comes from the righteousness of Christ. Do you thank him for that? And are you resting in this? When when you are weary and tired, when you are not getting some of the things that you would like to get from life, when circumstances are stacking up upon you and you don't know how to handle all these peripheral things that are happening in your life, do you find rest by returning to the one thing that matters more than any other thing? Do you find your joy and your hope in the truth that God has redeemed you and washed this immense debt away and has accomplished what you could never accomplish for yourself? If that is true of you, it will comfort you through every trial you ever experience in this life. And life in its uncertainty can can bombard you with circumstances beyond your control. But it cannot strip away from you the joy of knowing that you owe nothing to God anymore because Christ has paid that debt in your place. Thirdly, we should meditate. When we see a passage of scripture like this and we recognize the reaping and sowing principles were so vastly different under the old economy of the the old covenant, we should meditate on how different our life would be if we were living under the law if we were only able to reap the things that we sowed, how different would your blessings be if not for the grace of Jesus Christ? How how different would your joys be? How confident could you be today if your standing before the Lord was somehow tied to your righteousness? Would you not be anxious all the time? Would you not be trembling in fear, wondering if you were good enough to the Lord? How would God's church be different would this gathering of saints under God, would it be the, the unified family of love and peace that it is, Or would it not be a place of competition, where we were all trying to outgift each other? we were all trying to, to prove our worth to one another? Would it not be a place of, of, of cutthroat, cutthroat racing to heaven? How blessed are we that we get to live in this new covenant? where we don't have to fall into that error again and again of thinking that our efforts will somehow justify us before the Lord. In response to God's gracious generosity to you, friends, the last suggestion I would give, seek from God the strength and the wisdom to sow the things that bring him glory. We don't want to think about this release from the things of the law as a free pass to run around and discredit the name of God that has been placed upon us. In no way, shape, or form is the grace of God for us an excuse to be sinful and to not care about it. But in maturity, recognize that your new desire to run the race in faithfulness, to live a life that is worthy of the cross is not because you think you have to earn your place next to Jesus, but it is simply the fruit that is born by the great seeds of life that have been sown in you. God has brought about salvation and now he is bringing about in his believers the fruit of good works. So have a desire to be used of God in that way. Pray that the Lord would bring about a harvest of fruitful obedience in you. When you stumble and fall, as we all do, quickly identify that and repent of it and be grateful that the power of the cross was able not just to conquer the sins you had done before you met Christ, but every sin that you will ever commit. And the determining in your heart to never take that for granted, to not treat Christ as as a cheap thing. He will not be mocked. Let him be exalted instead. Let him be glorified through our obedience and let us rejoice in the fact that because of what he has done, we can actually love what is worth loving. Father, we praise you and thank you for your word and ask that as we conclude our service today, that you would continue to keep our eyes and our hearts and our minds upon you, Lord. Let us meditate your Son on your son all day long. Let us rejoice in the spirit that has tied us to you as a guarantee and a seal. Let us remember the fact that we are a part of a church that, uh, that we are called to love and to care for as well. Lord, help us to have true and good fellowship centered on the word today. We are grateful, Lord God, that uh, though your nation of Israel had to go through these difficult things to teach us the weakness of the law, that through it all, those who were truly yours were carried through it. The remnant remained yours. And by your spirit and by the grace that was behind and and in and through these covenants, Lord, carried them to the the point where you could redeem them them in Christ. And so we praise you, Lord God, that all who have ever been saved have been saved by the blood of your son. We thank you that Hosea was saved by the blood of your son. We thank you that our grandchildren will hopefully one day be saved by the blood of the son. There is no other way, and so let us rejoice in Jesus and the power he holds. Help us to understand that we've been set free from the slave master of sin. Let us not be its, uh, its servant any longer, but let us be willful servants of the Lord Jesus, knowing that he is the one and only king. We pray this in his perfect and powerful name. Amen.